0: Coming soon to own on video cassette.
1: Back on the Y2K front, despite
0: all of the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains. Just how many box office records can one movie break?
1: You take the blue pill. The story ends. I see dead
0: people. Malkovich, Malkovich.
1: You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize to what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one, happy
0: 1999.
1: all 1999, al Me llamo Andrew Tucker.
0: Me llamo Jared Stossel.
1: I think that's probably enough of that. Don't
0: you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Hey, everybody, welcome to 1999. Uh, this is the podcast where we do a deep dive into every film from the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history. And judging by that intro, I don't think we're going to be in America this week.
1: No. No, we're not.
0: And you know what? Considering right now, that's okay. Uh, This film is going to take us to the streets of Cuba for the 1999 documentary Buena Vista Social Club, directed by Wim Wenders. Um, This is our first documentary. It is. Yes. Um, I don't think there's a ton from this year, but this was definitely one of the bigger ones. And kind of nice that it touched on something that we both really enjoy, which is music.
1: I thought you were going to say Cuban cigars.
0: Never smoked, so I can't, I can't give that insight. Oh, I
1: do enjoy me a fine Cuban. <laughs> Not that I've had one in America, of course, because that would be <laughs> illegal. I had mine in Portugal. It's totally chill over there. Nice.
0: Yep. Um, initial reactions. What do you think of this? Um, just off the bat. Like it, didn't like it.
1: Dude, I, I like the music a lot. I don't know that I like the movie itself all that much. Yeah. But I'm down as fuck for some Cuban music.
0: Yeah. This it was, shit was
1: fire, dude.
0: Yeah. It was really... I always like seeing... I mean, I think if you listen to the show, it's no secret that we're very heavily into rock and metal and pop punk and all of those genres. So it's always... You're in that world so much that you kind of forget... Oh, there's other genres of music that are out there. Right? Um, <laughs> there are. So it's cool to be exposed to new kinds of music, and um, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I I think I I really liked the music and that approach to it, but I didn't necessarily. I don't know. I, I guess I'm okay with the movie, but we can we can get into all that later.
1: But and we will.
0: Nice. So let's set the scene. Buena Vista Social Club was released on June 4th, 1999. It was directed by Wim Wenders, and that's pretty much where this stops, because this is a documentary. There are no like stars, there's no cast to this, uh, there isn't a writer. You could count the people who write like the narration and stuff like that, but we're just gonna keep it simple. So the director was Wim Wenders, and Brief synopsis according to imdb.com, aging Cuban musicians whose talents had been virtually forgotten following Castro's takeover of Cuba are brought out of retirement by Rai Cooter, who traveled to Havana in order to bring the musicians together, resulting in triumphant performances of extraordinary music and resurrecting the musicians' careers. Now, Andrew, usually we do like kind of a fun rundown with this, but given that this was a documentary-style film, I mean, what kind of... What kind of synopsis
1: would you provide in this scenario? I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm gonna just, Let's just say this. We don't know how to do a documentary. We barely <laughs> yeah. know how to do a regular movie. <laughs> and if you've been listening the whole time, you've probably figured that out. So we're Amen. just kind of... We're winging it here. So I don't have a full rundown of this movie. Good enough for me. Because the only thing I could do is be like, well, then this guy picks up a guitar, and then he strums it. And then the other guy goes to a piano, and then he like tinkles the ivories there a little bit you know yeah and then this other guy gets a trumpet but then wait there's this other guy and he's singing and then there's this lady and she's singing too so like you know i'm not gonna do it i'm just not gonna do it
0: like i kept thinking about this like even if there was a film that we were covering like supersize me which has as a documentary a set beginning and end it's about a guy who says i'm gonna eat mcdonald's for 30 days so your rundown could be day one to day thirty. Here's what happens
1: and in, in between that. But day even one, then, McDonald's. Day two, McDonald's. Yeah. Day three, stomachache, McDonald's.
0: But even then, there's like so much uh, so many other things happening behind the scenes. It's not necessarily linear storytelling. Well that's, in the traditional sense. So It's
1: interesting that you say that, Jared, because one of the things about this movie that that's kind of weird to me is that it doesn't really have that narrative structure that a lot of documentaries have. Yeah, it's not clear what the story is from the beginning of this movie. It's not mm-hmm. super obvious, kind of where we're going. We're listening to some cool music. We're listening to these musicians talk about their lives and their music and all that stuff, but it's not exactly clear why we're doing all that or what the end result of that is going to be. Yeah, and so. There is a little bit of a story here, which is essentially getting all these musicians together who have been out of practice for a really long time, getting them back into the swing of things, and then they get to play a show at an amazing venue, and that's kind of like this really brilliant culminating experience for the story, for the people. It all sort of comes together nicely at the end, but we don't get that story until maybe 40, 30 minutes left in the movie. Yeah. So So it, it's a little jarring. It doesn't have that narrative structure that we would normally talk about. So Agreed. Yeah. I guess that's important to know going in, though.
0: Yeah. And even then, I think what's interesting is, and it's brought up in one of the reviews that we'll talk about later, but they get to this big, amazing concert. And that technically should have been the climax of the film, but it's intercut with all these other things. Like, you think, oh, they made it. It's their big show. But then, oh, no, there's footage of them walking around New York City and then talking, and, and it's like... I, I think it, I, I agree with you. It's a little bit jarring at times.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. So, but anyway, hey, guess what, guys? We're, we're going to do our best.
0: Yeah. You know? So, given that things are a little bit different this week, um, we're just going to jump into this and start talking about uh, the making of and the inspiration behind this movie. So, before we dive into inspiration, let's start with the basics. And I'll pass this off to you. Can you tell me what exactly
1: is the Buena Vista Social Club? I can, Jared, but it's more complicated than you might think because it's actually like four different things. Yeah, there you go. So the name Buena Vista Social Club applies to a handful of different things, including a nightclub, a band, an album, and of course, a documentary, which is why we're doing this podcast right now. Hey. Hey. So here's some (laughs) disambiguation. All right. The original Buena Vista Social Club was a members-only club located in Wait for it, Buena Vista, uh-huh. which was a quarter in the current neighborhood of Playa in Havana, Cuba. So uh, I thought you sense, were going right? to
0: say the D- the Disney Animation
1: Studio Buena Vista. You know, that would have been a, like an on-brand joke for me, Jared, and I just <laughs> I just fucked up. <laughs> I just fucked up. I have no excuse. It's cool. I'll release a formal apology later. <laughs> uh, the original nightclub was founded in 1932, and it changed locations in 1939 due to a lack of space at the original location, and we're starting to tickle that World War II thing here, Jared, but guess what? We're actually not going to talk about it this week, other than what wow. I just said, so we get a week off from Dub Dub Dose. All right. Pretty cool, right? Anyway. During that time period in 1939, clubs in Cuba were segregated racially into Sociedades de Blancos, which is white societies, and Sociedades de Negros, which is black societies. And they also had all the other variations of societies that you could have in a in a racially segregated place, basically. So no real big surprise here. You know, 1930s, 40s segregation going on that was happening in Cuba as well. Um, The societies operated as recreational centers where workers went to drink, play games, dance, and listen to music. So basically it was kind of like a YMCA, (laughs) right? Like you can go have a good time and I forget what else they say. Something about young boys anyway.
0: You can have a good meal or something like that, yeah.
1: The Buena Vista Social Club was a black society with roots going back to 19th century African slaves, and it, along with many other black societies in Cuba, were evidence of a longstanding institutionalized racial discrimination against Afro-Cubans in that area. So guess what? This kind of stuff was happening in multiple different places around the world at this time. The club was closed shortly after the Cuban Revolution of 1959 when Cuba's newly elected president and devout Christian, Manuel, and I cannot roll my R, so I'm just <laughs> going to say Urrutia, Leo, began closing gambling houses, nightclubs, and other kinds of, quote, hedonistic businesses. Around that same time, the Cuban government began a concerted effort to build a classless and colorblind society. And as part of that shift the government took a really hard stance against cultural expression in the black community because we know how this works by now, right? If you're trying to make everybody equal, you just take things away from people of color is basically the strategy. And I hate to say that because that's not what I believe, but that's how it's historically been done. So that's how it was happening in Cuba as well. And because of that, many of these venues that were backed by black societies were closed in 1962. And that unfortunately included the Buena Vista Social Club. So while the Cuban government continued to support traditional music after the revolution, they weren't subtle about pushing this new politically charged kind of genre known as Nueva Trova. And around the same time, pop music and salsa, both of which were derived from Cuban music but developed in the United States, began to take over more traditional genres such as son, which is what the documentary that we're talking about is about. Mm -hmm. So these closures and cultural changes explain why many of the musicians in the documentary were out of work by the time we hit the nineties. And it also explains why their style of music had declined leading up to the making of the documentary. So we're in some, some racial political turmoil. We are kind of having some culture squashed out by this desire to normalize and, and kind of, I don't know, sanitize the country of Cuba, basically.
0: Yeah. So in 1996, 34 years after the Buena Vista Social Club shuts its doors for the last time, a small group of guys decided that it was time to revive the music of pre-revolutionary Cuba. And those guys were... Out of curiosity, who do you think those guys
1: were? Uh, some Cuban dudes?
0: One was Nick Gold... An executive at World Circuit Records, which was a British world music
1: label. So, not Cuban. No, if
0: you see where this is going. Ry Cooter, an American guitarist who was known for some solo albums and some session work on Rolling Stones albums. And Juan de Marcos Gonzalez, a Cuban bandleader and musician.
1: Dude, one out of the three is actually Cuban. So, that's one. That's so hey, you know, we'll take what I can get.
0: Of these three guys, Nick Gold and Juan de Marcos Gonzalez were the visionaries behind the project. Gold, who was already a well-known guy in the world music scene, wanted to record a unique collaboration between West African and Cuban guitarists. He had actually planned to contact several musicians to form a band specifically for this recording session, which would be done entirely in Havana, Cuba. Gold invited Ray Cooter to sit in basically for just basically for shits and giggles, and he was more than willing to be part of this project. Gonzalez was the other visionary behind the Afro-Cuban supergroup. So while Gonzalez had spent most of his career playing American and British rock, he rediscovered his Cuban roots in the middle of his career. And one of his stated goals was to keep that torch of Cuban folk music alive for a younger generation. And it ended it turned out that Gonzalez was a great partner for gold particularly because he already knew all the musicians who would eventually perform on the album. So that's kind of handy that you already, you've already you done projects before where you're going and you're like, oh, I know all these people, yeah. And you kind of mesh a little bit better and it's, oh, exactly. it's more fun, yeah.
1: And what you guys have to understand too is this, not, this isn't a band of five people. No. There's like 400 people in this fucking band. That's it's, not true. But there's literally like 20-something people. It's a lot. So this, when we say he knew all the guys, he knew a lot of people
0: yeah so that like that's yeah exactly like again world bands that are in the world music category most people would think oh it's just like you have your drummer and your guitarist and your your bass player maybe it's like no there's like every instrument you can imagine has somebody for it like it's it's crazy um So, with Gonzalez's help, Gold and Cooter quickly started to fill out the band with legendary Cuban musicians, many of whom had already been retired for years or even decades.
1: Right, because remember, their music basically got squashed out by the government.
0: Exactly. And I'm going to do my best to pronounce any of these names, so please forgive me if I mess up on any of them. But these musicians included bassist Orlando Casaito Lopez, guitarist Eliades Ochoa, singer Manuel Puntaita Licea, pianist Ruben Gonzalez, and singer Compay Segundo. Soon after Raikuda met up with Gold and Gonzalez in Cuba, by way of Mexico, of course, you have to remember that there was a U.S. trade and travel embargo against Cuba, they were met with some unfortunate news. The African half of their Afro-Cuban supergroup was denied visas and were unable to travel to Havana from Mali. At that point, Gold, Cooter, and Gonzalez called an audible and decided to record an album with the local Cuban musicians they'd already lined up. So they named the group after the very club that had made it it popular in the 1940s, the Buena Vista Social Club. All right. And there it's born.
1: There we go, right? But it's,
0: like we said, it also means a number of other things.
1: Right, so in addition to being a nightclub and being a band, Buena Vista Social Club is also the name of the band's album from 1997. So now it's three different things. All right, so within three days of this project's conception, Cooter, Gold, and Gonzalez had filled out the rest of the band and arranged for recording sessions to commence at Havana's Egram Studios. And the studio, which was formerly owned by RCA Records, had remained largely untouched since the 1950s, making it the perfect place to record what was basically a throwback record. Yeah. Right? We're, we're recording oldies, essentially, at this point. And so they get the studio. They have all the musicians. They hire an interpreter to come into the studio and help facilitate communication between the Spanish and English-speaking members of the band, the English-speaking members being Ry Cooter and his son, who was also playing, I think, some kind of percussion on the album. So they bring in the interpreter. But according to Ry Cooter, and I think this is pretty cool, quote, "...musicians understand each other through means other than speaking." End quote and I, I love that quote because I yeah. think I, I think that's true having played music right I think music is kind of its own universal language like math only not terrible um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right so anyway the album was recorded in just six days and it contained 14 tracks and that's a lot of music for six days
0: yeah that's a, like that's and, and particularly for a world music band.
1: Right, there's a to record all of those tracks
0: that's but yeah it's a lot what
1: you have to understand though is they're recording live basically they've got everything yeah. mic'd up they're in one studio and they're just doing it it's not like today where you have your fucking joey sturgis drum sounds and you record all the guitars separately and the bass separately and the vocalist separately and all that kind of stuff it's you just you hit go and you see what happens So anyway, upon the album's release on September 17th, 1997, the CD became a huge word of mouth hit, which was, and still is pretty unusual for world music releases. That doesn't happen too often with this genre. So the album actually sold more than a million copies and it won a Grammy award in 1998. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. In 2003, it was listed by Rolling Stone magazine as number 260 in the 500 greatest albums of all time. Nice. Nice. So that's pretty badass. I'd be interested to see how many other quote-unquote world music albums are on that list. I would would guess not many. I have that magazine. I could find it at some point and look it up and tell you. Do it. Jared will tweet about it from the official (laughs) 1999, the year that Rock Cinema Twitter account.
0: I will. I'll find out. I'll see what I can find out.
1: So, Jared, we've talked about three different things that Buena Vista Social Club means so far. But obviously there's a fourth one because we're doing the podcast today. Correct. So my question for you is, how did the Buena Vista Social Club album end up becoming the movie that we're talking about today?
0: Okay, so we'll go to the pitch in the sell section of this show to answer that question. So there's another question we have to look at here to answer this. So if the Buena Vista Social Club album was already printed and sold by the time this movie was made, what exactly are we looking at? Well,
1: there's a little bit of a sneaky thing going on. Yeah,
0: so it's kind of weird. So shortly after Rye Cooter got back from the recording session in Havana, he started working with a German film director named, and I botched the pronunciation earlier, so bear with me, Wim Wenders, on Wenders. (laughs) on the soundtrack to his film, The End of Violence. But this wasn't the first time that Cooter and Wenders had worked together. Back in 1982, Vendors had asked Cooter to be his creative counterpart for his 1982 U.S. film debut, Hammett. However, when Hammett's producers found out that Vendors wanted to have a musician best known for slide guitar compose the score for a noir biopic, it didn't go well.
1: I could see that being a bit of a a tough discussion with the studio.
0: Yeah. Um, The two ended up postponing their collaboration until a film called Paris, Texas, a movie that much better that was much better suited to Cooter's signature slide guitar style. It's a shame that, um, yeah, so this film, so this 1982 film, Hammett, it's a shame that it didn't come a few years later because then he could have gotten Kirk Hammett to do the guitar for it. But anyway. (laughs) God
1: damn it, Kirk Hammett. (laughs) That's the new Dr. Seuss book that's coming out. (laughs) God damn it, Kirk Hammett.
0: So while Cooter was working on the score for the end of violence in Los Angeles, he couldn't stop thinking about or talking about the Buena Vista Social Club. In oh, fact, yeah,
1: dude. they were like, they were like, hey, do you want to do you want to make the music for this scene, Rai? And he was like, did you guys know that I went to Cuba? And they're like, right. We know you went to Cuba. And he's like, but like, did you know that when I was in Cuba, I played some music with some legendary Cuban guitarist? And they're like, right, we're trying to do this scene here. If you could, like, come up with some ideas for this scene. And then he just went, Cuba. <laughs> I don't know That's if what happened. Was, I don't know if it was exactly like that, but I'll take your word
0: for it. So vendors often felt like Cooter was noticeably distracted by thoughts of Cuba. And according to him, he said, Cooter always sort of looked in the distance and smiled. And I knew he was back in Havana. And according to one famous story, Cooter apparently slipped a cassette dub of a rough mix of the Buena Vista Social Club into Vendor's suitcase at some point, ultimately hoping to entice the director into their third collaboration. Now, although Vendor's knew nothing about Cuban music at the time, he became enthused by the tapes of the Havana sessions provided by him. And Vendor's was best known at the time for his feature films, but he was also an accomplished documentarian. So... He kind of started to kind of got stars in his eyes. He kind of started to see an opportunity for this next project. And so Kudra kept pushing him. He's like, I mean, we all know what it's like when you find a great band and you're like, you've got to listen to this. You have to hear this. He went to all stops to try to get him to listen to it. So he was like, okay, I listened to it. And he agreed to travel to Havana to film the recording of the next planned album, which was going to be Buena Vista Social Club Presents Ibrahim Ferrer. Um, so Vendors asked Cooter to let him know when he would return to Cuba, envisioning a documentary that would capture the story behind the music as well as the performance of the music itself.
1: Behind and, the music is copyrighted, by the way. We don't own that. Yeah. Bh <laughs> one Yeah. Don't sue us.
0: <laughs> so by the time the opportunity arose in 1998, it came with such short notice that Vendors only had a few days to assemble a small crew and secure all of the camera equipment that he would need to film the process. And that leads us into
1: filming. And you might be going, Whoa, what the fuck? You're not gonna talk about the cast right now? Yep, because yep. there's no cast this week. So Yeah, the cast is the musicians, and if you want to learn about them, you should just watch the, the documentary. Exactly. Or you can
0: hear us talk about some of the things because they'll probably be highlighted.
1: But anyway. (laughs) They'll come up a little bit, maybe. Yeah, But yes, watch the film if you'd like to know about the musicians. Vendors arrived in Cuba a few days after... I love saying it like that. Vendors arrived in Cuba a few days after he was invited, and he didn't have very much with him. In fact, when he landed in Havana, Vendors didn't even really have a plan. So what did he have, you might be wondering, because he doesn't seem to have very much at all. Well, he had two small digital cameras and a very rough idea for what he wanted to capture with them. So the two digital cameras that he had were a digital Betacam, which was popular for broadcast television use as a digital video cassette format that offers higher resolutions, a fifth analog audio track, and a linear timecode track on the tape. Very <laughs> fancy, right? Yeah. Remember, this is 1999. We didn't have Blu-ray back then or whatever the <laughs> fuck they're recording onto now. And they also brought a cam rig, which is... The thing that the director of photography, Jörg Widmer, used to make all the smooth circling shots that are a signature of this movie. If you're looking for a good example of that, the shot where I believe it's the, who, the piano player is sitting in the bar and they go like all the way through the bar just kind yes. of panning around him. That's a good example of what they use the steady camera. I right loved for. that shot. It was very cool. It was great, right? It, it was very long, almost like awkwardly long, but that's okay. So those were the two cameras. And then the other thing that he had with him was that very rough idea, which was, quote, to try to do justice to these amazing people and let the music speak for itself, end quote. Um, Some of the footage, including the sequence in the cigar factory, were even filmed without a permit. So he he didn't even have the right fucking permits to be doing this shit. But he set out and he started doing it anyway.
0: Yeah. So all the film, the scenes that were filmed in Havana were shot on this DV equipment in just three weeks and almost entirely using available light light, rather than professional lighting setups. And honestly, I'm going to just say something right here. I love this because it's what... When I was doing the film school program and they taught us about documentaries, there was all of this planning and all of these details that went into it. And I get it. There are things that you absolutely do need to plan. Like when you're gonna have time to edit when you're gonna have time to do these the kind of narrative you want for the story but at the same time if you're going into film something you can't plan this you have to let it unravel for you and so the idea that it's just like fuck okay we have three days i need two cameras i need this person and this person we're just gonna go and i have an idea of what we're gonna do i love that it's very do it yourself and i think that's awesome
1: The shit that we've talked about on this podcast so far is like some of these movies are years and years of planning and figuring out who's doing what and who the cinematographer is going to be and what kind of film they're going to use and calling fucking Kodak to get special film made because they don't (laughs) like the film that they have. And then you have this motherfucker who's just running down to Circuit City (laughs) with a credit card, picking up some shit and putting it in a plane to Cuba. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's cool. It's very like
0: DIY Yeah. I love it. So according to some, the fact that Buena Vista Social Club was shot entirely on DV equipment and then transferred to film made it a part of a pioneering generation of projects in the digital age. And there's something you need to remember. Digital equipment was relatively new at the time. And the fact that this DV equipment was highly mobile and very affordable made it the perfect fit for this project. The cameras were also low-key, they were non-intrusive, and they were sometimes small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. And that can make a huge difference in a documentary, because the lack of big bulky cameras and lighting equipment can actually help
1: place subjects at ease. Right, you gotta remember, like an actor is used to having a massive camera pointed at him, maybe three or four, all these lights, a bunch of people standing around and shit. And then you have these people who've been shining shoes for 20 years in Cuba, and suddenly they've got a fucking film crew, right? And that could be really, really scary. So if you're just showing up with a couple of cameras, you just got a couple of guys, you're maybe standing around drinking a beer, smoking a cigar, just shooting the shit, basically, you're going to get a lot more authentic stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think what's even crazier to just reflect on is that we have cameras that are now that small that can record 4K imaging, and video. So, if I really wanted to, and I wanted to go out and make a documentary about something, or fuck, even a like short film that I had planned out, I could just take that camera and go with myself and like one other person who can help do sound or uh, project locations and things and location management and things like that, and do that in such a way. This was kind of the first step towards filmmakers being able to do that. This was kind of the first showcase of that being done in a major film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is like the first Instagram story.
0: Oh, there you go. Um, According to the film editor, Brian Johnson, he said, quote, the fact is that the film just wouldn't have gotten made any other way. And I think given the circumstances, that's true.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Especially given the lack of permits and all that shit.
0: Yeah. Some of the more memorable sequences in the movie were even shot on many DV. You may be asking, why? Because the Digibeta Cam that was used for most of the principal shooting had not yet arrived, and one of the musicians, Compay Segundo, was scheduled to leave the island for a performance tour. So, Johnson estimates that roughly one-fifth of the entire film was shot informally on mini-DV by Vim Venders and his wife, Donata. Um, one example of this scene would be Rai and Joaquim Cooter's motorcycle ride through the streets of Old Havana. And the shots of Rai from Joaquin's point of view were actually taken by Joaquin himself using this little palm-sized mini DV camera. So that's almost like the precursor to the GoPro in a weird way.
1: Yeah, kind of. Or the smartphone. Again, it's this very DIY thing where the people in the movie are also the crew of the movie. And you're just trying to get shit done with what you have. Which, in an interesting way, is kind of a metaphor for Cuba in general. Because it's like... They have so many old cars and old appliances and all this. You know what I mean? Like, everyone is just making it work. Yeah. And that's kind of how the movie came about, too. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. But not everyone thought it was kind of cool, Jared. And I know we usually talk about reviews later on, but I found something from Roger Ebert talking specifically about these cameras, so I had to put it in here. Please, yeah. All right. So here's what he said. Quote. The credits say the film was made on two digital cameras. One seems to have been handheld by a cameraman with the shakes. One camera is level, smooth, confident. So we have our Digicam, right? And we have our Steadicam. Yes. (laughs) Um, To continue the quote, The other has the jitters so badly that you can sense the editor cutting away from it as much as he can. The unstable handheld look can be an interesting choice in certain situations. Blair Witch Project. As a style, uh-huh. it becomes a problem. <laughs> so, what do you think about that, Jared? Like, how did you feel about the camera work in the movie?
0: So, it's kind of like what you just—I mean, you kind of hinted at that, but I keep thinking, like, okay, then Blair Witch Project. Um, it it can be in, it can be an interesting choice in certain situations for sure, and I think that that he would touch on that a month later when Blair Witch Project came out, but. Uh, in terms of the camera, I, for some reason, it didn't totally bother me. I looked at this as a very—I didn't look at this as a huge like Netflix-style documentary that we'd get now. This was a very like this was a time when digital technology was first starting to come into into the world. So the study cams when they came out, or like the DV cameras, they weren't perfect. When we got no. our first iPhones they weren't perfect. The video was shitty. It couldn't, it could barely, I know this sounds like a very spoiled problem, but, and I'm not saying this is a complaint, but the first iPhone that we got had trouble connecting to the internet. And when it did connect to the internet, it was very grainy and you had to zoom in and it was literally like just a snapshot of a web browser. Now, uh, that came out in 2006, I think is when they first came out several years later now we have it in like the palm. we have a a fucking supercomputer in the palm of our hands the technology that was used in this film at the start with in terms of the camera work it didn't I guess it didn't bug me that much because I I knew what the film was it was somebody who was going in to an area of the world that didn't necessarily allow this kind of stuff so they had to kind of do it in this guerrilla way It'd yeah. be similar, like, if someone today was to go into North Korea. Um, like, that wouldn't happen now because of, like, if somebody was filming now, they could be caught instantaneously because of, like, spy cameras and right. surveillance and all this stuff. But back then, that didn't exist. Plus, At least there's it,
1: not a lot of Cuban musicians in North Korea, so that, they would have had a really hard time making the movie, I
0: think. <laughs> that's true. But what I mean is it's going into an area that is not necessarily very open to American tourism. And so to have this granted access to come in and say, hey, we're going to do this, I think the choice is not necessarily an artistic one. It was a necessary one because you couldn't walk in at the time and be like, hey, we have a giant film crew and all these things. You'd be questioned or told to put your cameras away instantaneously. With exactly. this, it's just a necessary, it, it it's very, I'm trying to find the right word for it, it's, it's very fitting to what their position is in the story. They're trying to get in, as people from another country, to tell a story in almost kind of a third-world-style country, um, and they're using the only equipment that they really have at their disposal. So it didn't bug me that much. Oh, What did you think about it?
1: I don't know, man. I mean, I'm spoiled, like he said it's hard for me to get through something that looks like it was filmed on a potato, which this does in a lot of parts, but like, I don't know. I, I, the handheld thing in and of itself doesn't bother me. Like if it was, if they did this handheld with a film camera and it was like HD, I think that little kind of shaky look would be part of what I almost expect from a documentary. It's kind of realistic and you know, that's a little more informal and in the moment. Um, But Hey, when this came out, it probably looked pretty good for digital agreed you know so i don't i don't really have a complaint about it either way i i kind of like the handheld thing and i think probably roger ebert was more anti-digital than he was anti-handheld yeah but he didn't want to say that because that would sound like a curmudgeony thing to say
0: and i think what's funny though is that he's saying like i don't know i don't think the handheld look um works i think the unstable handheld look can be an interesting choice in certain situations it's like okay Hold on to that after Blair Witch. Yeah, when let's see what you say. In a movie. every studio and every fucking movie coming to straight, straight uh, to um, video on demand is all handheld horror films.
1: Yep, we'll see. <laughs> let's see what I'll, your I'll be curious is. to track that later in the
0: year. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to visit back to that when we do Blair Witch. Um, but even with that being said, with the some of the complaints about the cameras being armed with this less-than-professional equipment, Vendors was getting a lot of footage in Havana.
1: Yeah, and as these hours and hours and hours of tape began to pile up, Vendors began to feel like the musicians were coming across less like documentary interview subjects and more like fictional characters with these like distinct kind of almost mythical personalities. And according to Vendors um, on PBS.org, he said, quote, "'Musicians, unlike most actors, ironically, relish and are quite good at spinning tails and men in their seventies and eighties have plenty of tales to spin. Perhaps the essential element here is that these musicians shared a direct lineage to the classic era of Cuban popular music. They had played with and were in and of themselves, the legends of the golden era. Hmm. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so they're getting all these footage, they're getting all these great stories. So from a content gathering standpoint, things are going fucking great. Basically, Vendors just had to turn on the camera and wait to capture something that was, quote, larger than life. Yeah. And he did. And by the time he left the island, he had 50 plus hours of footage to sift through and use.
0: That's not bad for, like, going that, doing everything so on the fly. That's a lot of footage to sift through.
1: It's Yeah, it is. It's it's not too shabby at all. But not everything was going so smoothly. Hmm. Isn't that right, Jared?
0: Yeah, that's very true. Uh, yeah, there were a few things that didn't go so smoothly. Um for starters, shooting in, as I kind of alluded to this before, shooting in Cuba was difficult. So for one thing, the crews had a certain degree of trouble accessing basic necessities like electricity, which, if you've ever done anything in the modern age, is pretty important, particularly for filming a movie. Do you so, think
1: we could make our podcast without electricity, Jared? No. I was gonna say took you longer than I thought to, to come up with that no.
0: I was thinking about it and I think what I meant to think what I meant to say, say was could we make it without digital technology? And the answer is yes. We could make it on tape, technically, but we would have to be in the same room. Um, without electricity though? No, you need it to
1: power the tape machine. Did so, you know that the ancient Egyptians had podcasts? But they of course got their electricity from the extraterrestrials. <laughs> Love it.
0: Another problem was feeding the crew three square meals a day. Although I'm not really sure that what that means. And we couldn't really find any specifics on why this was so challenging. Um, so take that for what you will. Um, another challenge was that the film crew was shooting an actual recording session, not a mock session as is usually in the case in like MTV style documentaries or like if you've ever seen One Tree Hill when there's a band that's on they're mimicking playing live but just for like filming purposes and then they're playing the actual track so apparently at one point Kuda was so stressed about handling the production affairs album that he had actually asked vendors to leave the studio for a little while
1: because vendors is standing in there he's getting all up in his ass He's going, oh, hey, Fry, do you mind if I just get right up inside the little guitar hole Why do you and make think a shot Germans... of a
0: guitar hole? Why do you all think all Germans sound like I'm like a caterpillar?
1: I don't think that they do, Jared. I know that they do for a fact. Because Bug's Life is also a documentary. <laughs> okay. Don't tell me it's not. Okay. So okay. anyway, vendors is. oh, I want to stick my little DV camera in the guitar hole while you're plucking and see the insides. Can I see the inside of the guitar hole? And Cooter was like, just get the fuck out of here, Vim. Just go. You just need a timeout. And he goes, okay. I will go find myself some sweets and treats to eat. And then he left and he did. (laughs) That's why they couldn't get a a, a square meal because it was all sweets and treats.
0: (laughs) Way to bring it back around. Um, It turns out that the musicians were hyper aware. It's kind of something that... referencing something you said earlier the musicians were hyper aware of the fact that they were on camera throughout the entire recording process and the problem wasn't that they were overperforming for the cameras but more so that they always seemed to be slightly distracted by the film crew so vendors ended up being booted out of the studio on more than one occasion to let the musicians focus on the music and that's understandable
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: So the fact that Cooter was producing a real album during the shoot in Havana also had an impact on the ultimate direction of the film. Because he was so busy producing his own artistic endeavor, uh, Cooter was often unavailable to vendors. So he was pretty much... They were both kind of doing their own thing. But as a result, vendors ended up focusing more closely on the musicians' individual stories rather than the process of making the album. Which I think in the case of the documentary does work and i think that aspect of it is cool and
1: unique i think it's cool too i think the issue for me with that is that i feel like they started out very clearly wanting it to be about the process of making the album agreed and then it became about this other thing and then they kind of lost like the beginning of the story because they didn't know what the beginning of the story was until they already had 30 hours of footage or something. so that's the only issue that that i have with that but hey You know, they're winging it, like we said.
0: Yeah. But on top of all of that, with all the problems that filming presented, the recording of the album also posed its own challenges and problems.
1: Yeah. Um, for, for starters, the tape machine at the studio just so happened to break down before a single song was cut. Hmm. So that's not convenient. Um... But even before that happened, they had a bit of trouble getting all the musicians together. And you have to remember that most of the players on this album were pretty fucking old at the time that the album and documentary were recorded. Very true. Kampai Segundo, for example, was 89 years old at the time. And I think he was the oldest one of the crew. No spring chicken, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And on top of that, many of these people hadn't played in years. And some of them were either out of shape or impossible to track down. So the pianist you mentioned earlier, Ruben Gonzalez, he had such terrible arthritis that he couldn't bear to touch the piano keys, which is a pretty big problem if you're a piano player. True. Uh, Rather than keeping his vocal chops fresh, the vocalist, Ibrahim Ferrer, who was the main guy on the album that they're recording this documentary about, had been shining shoes for a living and not singing. So, you know, if you're a vocalist, just like any other musician you want to keep yourself fresh right absolutely um so he hadn't really been doing that some of the people just never showed up and nobody had any fucking clue where they were they're like hey what about this guy who's like plays the timbales and they're like oh i don't know i haven't heard from him in like 400 years yeah he could be anywhere and they're like and, okay
0: and there was no such thing as social networking at the time so you couldn't right. just easily go and look up the possibility of someone just being online and saying oh Oh, he's he's oh he's over here. Let's just message him. Like you couldn't right? do that at all.
1: And there's there's even a line in the documentary where they're like, this guy could be, the fucking block away from here. He could be dead. He could be in fucking Japan. Who knows? Nobody knows where any of these people are. So yeah. So that was a little tough. Um, so all the, they, they couldn't find anybody. And by the time they did have a band put together, nobody was really a hundred percent confident that they were actually going to be able to pull this thing off, because it was kind of like. It was kind of like the Toon Squad putting together their basketball team to play against the Monstars. Just anything they could find, show up and do your best. Yes. Right? Um, But if you've seen the movie, you know that that fear was proven wrong. Uh, Many of the people involved in the project remember a very cool moment where the pianist Ruben Gonzalez showed up at the studio for a, quote, audition. And he sat down at the piano. And the filmmakers watched from the control room as this elderly man just sits at this piano in the booth and he cracks his aging arthritic fingers and he just, he kind of sits quietly for a moment. The lights go down. It's all very cinematic, right? And then he begins to play. And then without prompting, the bass player who's standing nearby just joins right on in and starts playing his bass. It's like that scene in Walk Hard where they come up with the first track (laughs) in the studio together. And... So the bassist starts playing, and they're just locked into a fucking groove, and they're just going at it for several minutes. That sounded sexual. They're playing music together for several minutes, and then the lights come back up. And then when the lights come on, Gonzalez is like, oh, shit, I fucked up. They don't like it, and he stopped playing. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. That was good. That was good. Don't worry, dude. Um, and they all knew that they were, like, ready to rock and roll. I yeah. guess not rock and roll. Ready to sewn would be more accurate. But <laughs> well they're ready to go. So, what happened next?
0: So, the recording session is only part of this movie. Another equally, if not more important part, because it plays into the beginning of the film and the climax of the film, are the concerts. And it's, it's framed by two legendary concerts. One of them is in Amsterdam, which is at the start of the film, and the other is at Carnegie Hall in New York City. And so, when the film crew initially set up in Amsterdam to shoot the rehearsals and the concert, they were fully under the impression that it would be the one and only live performance ever that the Buena Vista Social Club would play as a band. However, the unlikely event of a performance at Carnegie Hall soon became a possibility. Booking the show was touch-and-go, most likely, again, due to the poor relations between the U.S. and Cuba, but eventually the gig was set. So, by that time... Vendors already had more than enough footage for his film, but decided to shoot the, fi- the band's final performance at Carnegie Hall because he felt like it would make a nice symbolic close to the story's narrative circle. And I think we are both in agreement that that was a really good call.
1: I think so too. I just wish he would have set up the circle. Yeah. You know, it's like he closed it, but he never opened it to begin. Yes, exactly. So. But anyway. But with all
0: this footage captured and a nice tidy ending all set in place, the only thing left for vendors to do was edit. Now, you might imagine that it would be tough to edit a documentary like this, let alone any documentary, particularly because vendors gathered all of his footage without really knowing exactly what story it was that he wanted
1: to tell. And you know, I know, I was thinking, Jared, that it might be tough to edit a documentary like this, particularly because vendors gathered all this footage Without really knowing exactly what story it was he wanted to tell, and I think he'd be right. Um, but interestingly enough, the
0: editing is one of the most is one of the things that works best about this film and the approach that it ended up taking. So, particularly, I appreciated and Andrew appreciated the way that, Wendor, that vendors blended the concert footage with footage of the musicians recording the album and walking around in Havana. One really good example of this is the scene where vocalist Omara Portuando is walking down the street singing a traditional song, and compelling strangers to join in. Vendors then seamlessly cuts to Portuando performing that same song on stage at a full concert in Amsterdam. And I Dude, think it's
1: such a cool scene.
0: Yeah, those cuts are really cool because they demonstrate how these, de- like quote unquote, down home traditional songs that everybody in Cuba knows, were literally transported to the world stage, and at the same time though it shows something really important that music is still at the core of this entire story and it shows how universal it is
1: well what's cool about that cut to me is that her performance doesn't change from when she's walking down the street just singing to random strangers to when she's on stage at fucking Carnegie Hall she is doing it with the exact same level of commitment and passion and I I think that's like those little moments are where the story actually is. And I think without the editing done that way, you don't see that.
0: It's kind of like, I'll tie this back to pop punk for a second and to like that genre. I I have a good comparison that I could use. It would be like if you were watching a documentary about Paramore and you saw footage in like a documentary or about that kind of music or whatever. And you see, footage of Haley Williams from 2003 or 2004. When she started playing, she was booked because people like Kevin Lyman thought she was like, Oh she, yeah, she's really talented. They booked her out in basically the main entryways to all of these venues on the taste of chaos tour on a tour where like kill switch engage and my chemical romance and like all these like bigger emo bands are playing. She's out in the entryway, just playing acoustic guitar and, no one's really paying attention, but people are going, "Oh, she's really good." You're to take that footage and then cut it next to Paramore playing at like Wembley Stadium in the UK to show like that that time jump. That's right. it's kind of like what the modern comparison of that would be. But even then, no matter what the music is, showing that storytelling element is great because it shows just how universal—not just music is, but what that that story that going from local to internationally known is like
1: yeah well dude this movie kind of dances on the edge of just being a collection of random clips that are all about the same thing yeah and it's these little editing moves that give it some kind of 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 life
0: yes agreed
1: yeah so in addition to those another noteworthy visual element in the film is the nearly black and white imagery of the amsterdam concert scene um but the shoot wasn't originally planned to be in black and white It turns out that the lighting in Amsterdam wasn't very good, and it contrasted with the band's wardrobe in a really weird way. Uh, Basically, they had, and Jared can attest to this, they had red stage lights, which can be a pain in the ass. Yeah. And then you've got all these Cuban people wearing, like, bright-ass clothes. Because Cuban people have cool fucking clothes. Yeah. They were like, bright colors and neat shit. So you have these red stage lights with all these bright-colored clothes And that is a nightmare from a live photography standpoint. Isn't that right?
0: I I would agree with that because it means that everything, unless there's like a yellow or white light on the people to accentuate accentuate all of those like nicer colors, it's just going to be washed out in red and you're going to need to color correct the hell out of it. And it sucks. So that's a huge problem.
1: Yeah, and guess what? You couldn't really do a lot of color correction on this potato fucking footage that they had. And that's
0: what's, like, driving me even crazier because I'm like, oh, if you can't even use Lightroom to turn it to black and white or do anything, li- like, what the hell are you going to do? So
1: Right. So you want me to tell you what they did?
0: Please do. It'll It'll alleviate some of my anxiety.
1: I'll do it. So just <laughs> like Jared's having a panic attack now. <laughs> Vendors was also very unhappy with the colors of the footage that he saw in the editing room. And he goes, what the fuck are we going to do with this? And so they decided to desaturate the footage. And for the layman who hasn't spent hours and hours editing in Lightroom like Jared, desaturation is basically the process of bleeding the color out of an image, but not making it black and white. You just take out enough color to create a kind of sepia-ish, black and white-ish hybrid tone it's a very subtle eerie kind of effect and at first glance it almost looks black and white until you see like a little hint of red or something here right so yeah it's it's basically just turning the 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 saturation way 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 down Mm -hmm. um and ultimately they made this decision because the footage looked like shit and then they decided that it was actually like a stylistic move that they did on purpose and it gave the film this third visual feel that kind of puts you between the world of havana which is bright and colorful and the world of carnegie hall which is like kind of like sterile and like professional you know and then you have this sort of like middle ground thing and so they they just said that's why they did it but we know that that's not the
0: truth (laughs) yeah i i can call that bluff real quick um, for sure. And I'm not saying that as someone who <laughs> considers that to be an expert in any of this, but I do have a fair but amount But he of, is
1: an expert in I'm
0: this. not, but I appreciate you saying that.
1: I, I, I have some knowledge of how color works and... Um, I would endorse Jared on LinkedIn for I, I, professional photography, and I wouldn't endorse most people for most reasons. I appreciate that. Thank you Because I don't much. believe
0: in bullshitting. Your photography is pretty fucking amazing, though.
1: I'm I can't do what you do, Jared. I, but I this is not disagree. a circle jerk podcast,
0: <laughs> so we're going to move on. We're going to move on. Yes. So we're going to talk about an interesting section of this. The, this is usually where we talk about symbolism, metaphors and illusions. So in this section we talk about like if there's any like the sixth sense, if there's any fun like symbolism that's in there, any metaphors or illusions, if there's like a, a funny reference on our, like last week we or last episode we said there was a car that had a 666 license plate on it. So yeah. like, like little things like that.
1: Sometimes so, though, we use this section to dive into some deeper issues. Yes. So socioeconomic discussions.
0: So we're doing that for this one. And there's two that we're going to kind of take a look into. The we're first going to get
1: super serial right now.
0: <laughs> the first thing that we're going to take a look at is the quote, first third world take. So, generally, when a documentary film shows people from the first world entering a third-world area, it shows the documentarian as the star, rather than the people who are actually the focus of the film. Raikuter has a different take on this, however. If you notice in this, his name doesn't appear on any of the album covers, and he seems way more interested in just being a session player, even though his job entails far more than that. But because of this, there are most likely many more people throughout the United States and Europe that know who Buena Vista Social Club is rather than who Ry Cooter is. And it's a unique its unique to see a documentary take this kind of approach rather than like like how Michael Moore is kind of at the front of his documentaries and he's almost kind of the star, but then right. there's another subject or a Mergen Spurlock in... Um, Super Size Me or any of those films. They're like a star, but in this it's really observational.
1: It's interesting to me because a lot of the times in this situation, you have a guy like Ry Cooter who's coming in and he's producing this record. Right? And so he's going, I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to take this music of yours that no one's ever heard and I'm going to make you guys big. But really kind of the secret behind that is like I'm going to get a lot of credit for introducing you to the world. That's how this kind of thing normally goes, right? I don't think that's what they're trying to do in this case. I do think there's a little bit of a weird focus on Ry Cooter during some of the concert footage, particularly at Carnegie Hall, where you see the camera kind of like pan over to him or kind of zoom in on him a little bit where it doesn't necessarily need to. I think that's probably more vendors doing than Cooter's doing. Um, But you don't get that as being like the story of like, I'm going here to uncover this amazing music that you've never heard and, and do these people such an incredible favor of taking them from shoe shiners to famous musicians.
0: Yeah. That's not like the, like the the, the the American idol approach.
1: Exactly. So I, I think that's, I think that's pretty cool that it subverts that typical structure
0: there's another bigger reaching issue with this film and that is the world music issue so you've probably all heard this term before world music it's generally on any spotify itunes title platform that you see anything that's there it'll be a genre it was a genre in Music stores and bookstores everywhere
1: in America. If you've heard anything with like a bongo or a pan flute or some chimes, it's probably categorized as world music, yeah. even if it's not.
0: So so there's a writer named Joshua Jelly Shapiro. And in his words, world music is defined as, quote, the curious genre-cum marketing tag invented in the 80s to peddle the folk culture of Earth's poorer nations to record buyers in the richer, one, in the richer ones.
1: And that's kind of what I was just talking about. Yes. Right. Yeah.
0: So, and this particular world music brought with it some criticism. So four months after this film hit theaters, David Byrne, yes, that David Byrne, published an article in the New York Times. And I found- Because I
1: didn't know which David Byrne it was.
0: And I found the title of it, and it is called, I Hate World Music. (laughs) Fair enough. He was extremely critical in this article- of Americans using the term world music. So, it gets your attention. He doesn't hate music from around the world, but he hates the term. So he was extremely critical of Americans using this term, calling it, quote, a catch-all marketing and pseudo-musical term for the selling of non-Western and or non-Anglophone music that ultimately flattens individual musical contributions and historical cultural context. However, the issue with the term world music doesn't just pertain to marketing. World music projects have generally been the products of Western, a.k.a. American producers, and this creates a problem in that it can make it seem like world music is something that not only has to be picked and chosen by Westerners, but that it's curated to only be quote-unquote appropriate for Western audiences. Well,
1: it's this whole idea of creating an other, right? There's our music, and then there's this other music. There's the stuff we like, we like Bruce Springsteen and shit, and then there's the stuff they like, which is like people hitting rocks with sticks and stuff. You know what I mean? And that's not really what world music is. That's not no, what I think it is. No, but yeah. that's what they're. That's what we're trying to illustrate is the mentality it's behind the this, most right?
0: basic Americanized thought of what world music would be. Exactly. So, when If it's a social club, and more specifically, world music drew some heavy criticism for this. It was a musical project that tried to show audiences what a civilization had looked like 50 years prior yet several members of the group had a strange relationship with the venue itself. In a weird way this and I'm curious to know what you think of this it's almost like this project was a term I came up with called bottling nostalgia. It was like taking something from a very specific time period trying to push it and then say this is what it's like now but a lot of people aren't going to look into oh this is what it sounded like Prior to this, it was like, they'll just think, oh, that's from Cuba. So everything in Cuba must sound like that. It's like, no, not necessarily. Um, But by choosing a name like Buena Vista Social Club, it seems like the producers were trying to present a particular idea about this time and place rather than reflecting what it actually may have looked like.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. But you also, unless the music was recorded back then, you it's always going to be a representation of that true right and i think what this movie got right is that they actually got the fucking people who were doing it in the first place to do it they didn't do the whole thing where you know they're putting on a sari and sitting on the ground and playing a didgeridoo and all this other weird you know what i mean like it's not some white guy in a room trying to recreate these old sounds You know what I mean? There is a white guy in the room participating in the process for some reason. I don't really think Raikuder needed to play in the recordings, but that's a different point. That doesn't really matter. But I I think, I don't know, it is going to be a representation. But I think bottling nostalgia is a good way to put it.
0: The music did help bring something back from the past, and that was tourism. So the music that was recorded in this film was from the 40s and 50s. By recording this kind of music and by releasing it, it it almost reinvigorated U.S.-Cuban tourism, or at least the interest in it, which, in turn, it turned Havana into a global destination. When Cooter went to Cuba for this documentary, this was during an embargo-era U.S., which meant that travel was restricted heavily between Cuba and the United States. And yep. this film's release helped bring about two really important ideas to American audiences. One... It made people remember that Cuba was an iconic U.S. tourist spot before 1959. Many people had forgotten about that, that we were actually okay with that country. And ironically, Cuba was much closer than we had previously thought, but also very far away. They were geographically located right near us, off of the coast of Florida, but isolated from us in every possible way. So, I don't know. It's these very interesting ideas and these very interesting things that happened because of this film
1: so the, the moral of the story there is well there may be some dastardly motives behind world music as an industry term there's some positives that came out of absolutely this documentary and this documentary is not necessarily exploitative in the way that a lot of other world music is agreed right isn't that what we're trying to say i, I
0: think, think so. yeah i i cool i i
1: Can you confirm that my opinion is my opinion, Jared? (laughs) Anyway, uh, one thing, though, is like it it doesn't seem like the film is necessarily trying to critique world music. It's kind of an Observer-style documentary about it. And Vendor speaks only with his camera and lets his subjects speak and play their music, letting their own words speak for themselves, right? Essentially, vendors didn't provide a ton of historical context for this film because he just wanted to focus on the music. They don't explain any of this embargo shit or any of that kind of stuff in the There's movie.
0: There's one picture of Fidel Castro when he visited America in the first two minutes of the movie, and that's all they reference from it. That's it.
1: Yep. and if, the, if you don't know who he is, you might just think it's a guy that works at your local coffee shop. So, yeah. you know, that's what it is. Um, the movie does actually seem like a pretty sincere attempt to try and overcome the generalizations that world music's fallen into. Like I said, the film frames members of the group individually rather than touching on any serious geopolitical issues that were going on between the United States and Cuba. So we're looking at these musicians as individual people, not as a group of Cubans who make songs. You know what I mean? So I think that's that's one way it tries to combat that. Inventors um, is no stranger to this idea of cinematic tourism his previous films, like The American Friend and Paris, Texas, also did the same kind of thing. Yeah. So it's it's something that he's been interested in for a while. Um, it wasn't just some random bee in his bonnet to do this.
0: Yeah, so with that being said, there are a couple little aspects that still don't work within the narrative, even though it is a genuine attempt and a sincere attempt to try to overcome the generalizations. Uh, Jelly Shapiro, the writer we talked about earlier, highlights this in his Criterion Collection essay. Fun fact, the film is in the Criterion Collection. But um, he states that having Cooter and his son in the film doesn't necessarily work with the narrative being set forth, with this idea of an observational documentary. It doesn't necessarily make sense that then he... Kind of like how you said, I don't necessarily know why he has to be on the album. It doesn't necessarily make sense why he's in the film, if it's supposed to be from an observer's point of view. But He continues on to say that this might actually be a necessary tool for the film. Because by having two Westerners in this film, it circles back and touches on this idea that world music is a Western world invention. And while this is showing a different take on that, it's still kind of highlighting that, hey, this is kind of where that idea came
1: from. It kind of shows you the man behind the curtain, I guess. A little bit, yeah. Right? It peels back that layer of the... The onion that you wouldn't otherwise see. Exactly.
0: So this, this is the fastest we've ever gotten to this section. I am sh- in shock and surprise. But we are now ready to talk about the release and the reception of this movie.
1: Do you want to slow down and talk about something else for two hours first? Or should we just keep going?
0: Well, you know, I actually... No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's, again, not a ton about like test screenings. This isn't like we're not going into this like the level of American Beauty, where there was like tons of information on the test screenings and the Sixth Sense and all that stuff. But so there isn't much information surrounding that. But the film did have an early premiere before its initial wide release at Biff or Biff. The Berlin International Film Festival. So it premiered on at the festival on February seventeenth, nineteen ninety nine. Before gearing up for a June release.
1: So the Berlin International Film Festival is actually the villain in Back to the Future.
0: <laughs> yeah. So he he goes back in time to this. He gets the sports almanac, but then at this point he doesn't make the bet until um, I think nineteen ninety nine. I can't. Yeah, my timeline is off.
1: I don't know anything. Yeah. The whole thing. This is why I shouldn't joke about things I don't understand. The whole
0: Thanos snap really fucked up the timeline for me. So, anyway. It did.
1: Yeah. Those are the same universe as you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or are they, as we could find out as these movies continue? I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Anyway, um, with that being said, it's showtime. The film released in the United States on June 4th, 1999, with an international release following shortly. And while the actual budget is unknown, which I assume at this point is just the cost of travel and the two cameras that he rented, uh, the film grossed $23 million worldwide. So with that little of a budget, of an assumed budget, that is not bad at all. That's pretty fantastic. Let's talk about the ratings and the reviews.
1: Um, Yeah, dude, so on Rotten Tomatoes, This movie has a 92% critic consensus out of 48 critics and a 90% audience score, which I M H O is a little high. I think that's a smidge on the high side, but that's not really for me to say. So yeah. So even though everybody on Rotten Tomatoes seems to be creaming their pants over this fucking movie, the negative and positive reviews from official critics generally tend to skew the film into a territory that is kind of just okay. And there's not really any serious hate for the movie, but there are some criticisms across even the good reviews. So it's kind of a weird one. It's an oddball. It's interesting. That's a documentary thing. I don't know. Maybe. So I'm going to go ahead and read the positive review this week. Cool. And I'm going to make Jared read the negative one. (laughs) Sounds good. There we go. Just like I made him say all the hard names earlier. Sorry, Jared. This is my week. (laughs) Uh, It's all good, man. (laughs) So the positive review comes from Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly. And here it is. During the interviews, the musicians smile, puff on lusciously oversized cigars, and gently reminisce about meetings and performances from decades ago. Yet the conversations are perfunctory to the point of appearing merely promotional. The Cuba we see in Buena Vista Social Club is, enticingly, about as far as you can get from a culture of Dilberts. Yet we can't help but be aware that this isn't the whole story, that Vendors has fatally downplayed the iron grip of Castro's regime. I raise this point not because I wanted to see a political tract, but because what the film leaves unexplained is how this joyous musical outpouring, which predated the revolution, could fare under a system with a pathological distrust of beauty. Still, the music itself needs no explanation. It slithers and spangles. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to this motherfucker. <laughs> because, guess what, Owen? I think it's okay for the movie to be about the music. I don't think it has to tell the entire political story of Cuba. It's not about that. It's about these fucking 23 dudes, or, or women, however many people were involved with this, And the fucking music that they make. And yes, contextually speaking, that music was squashed out of existence by a bunch of really shitty political stuff. Yeah. But we're trying to get the positivity of the music back. We're not trying to just keep rehashing the same fucking Castro shit that's been playing on History Channel for 20 years.
0: Yeah. I I think I I understand what he's saying, though. I I think I see that it isn't... I don't think he wants it to be a total history lesson of the world. Like you said, there's a ton of History Channel programs all about that if you really want to go and learn about it. But it doesn't really touch that much on why the club was run out of business, why these musicians are now kind of here. I think it almost wanted to touch on that just a little bit so you could get more of an understanding of, oh, why is this so important?
1: But I think there's an element that you have to be careful about there. Where you could get into a situation where that almost gets you closer to that white savior thing. Where it's like, look at all the terrible shit that these people went through. Look at all, you should feel so sorry for them. And if I didn't come and make this album with them, there would be nothing happy for them at all. You would still have to just feel sorry for them. So it's celebrating the music without making it some kind of thing that's about... The politics, I, I. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I like, actually do. That's I, great. That's a really I, good point. It would almost make it more in that sort of like exploitative vein if they were like, here's all this terrible shit, and then here comes these white filmmakers to sort of like pull them out of this dark depth of despair. You know? Agreed. I think that, I, that makes perfect sense, and
0: I didn't even think about that.
1: Um, the, Neither did Owen Gleiberman, <laughs> son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> so the negative review the thing about some of these films being in 1999 particularly the ones that didn't necessarily have the same legacy as a film like star wars or fight club or like a blockbuster movie when you go to the reviews on rotten tomatoes they don't always they may have a link to something or they may not it may just be a blurb so i pulled like two negative reviews one is just like two sentences that was from a blurb that i thought was interesting Uh, It was from Michael W. Phillips of a blog called Goat Dogs Movies, which I believe the blog is now defunct. But it says, quote, it is a nearly perfect collection of music. The film of the same name, however, is deeply flawed. And I would have been interested to read more about that, but it's not available. What are the
1: flaws, Michael W. Phillips, of Goat Dogs Movies?
0: So the other thing I noticed on Rotten Tomatoes is that it catalogs the reviews by which date they were released. So you could see Reviews that started in 1999 and then went into 2000 and 2001, and so on and so forth. So, people who started film blogs and decided to review it, as long as they met the accreditation of Rotten Tomatoes, could get added to the website. So, I found like the only negative skewing review I could find at the time of release was from Roger Ebert, and it had the full review and everything. So, here's and a-
1: this is the same one that my camera complaints came from yes. earlier in the show, by the way. So,
0: this is, um, an excerpt from that and it says when the social club gets to new york the carnegie hall concert should have been the climax instead of pausing simply to listen to the music vendors intercuts carnegie hall with shots of the musicians visiting the empire state building and times square looking in souvenir shop windows talking about how wonderful it all is as if they were on a school trip this is condescending the movie reminded me of a concert where somebody behind me is talking and moving around all the time let them play when they do it is magical.
1: Now, I'm going to fire back at this one, too. Okay. And he is in almost direct disagreement with Owen Gleiberman. Because Gleiberman wants you to fucking just wallow in the, in the bullshit of the whole Castro regime. Right? Which gives context. Maybe that would have helped with Roger Ebert's point. Because the reason they're showing these guys wandering around the Empire State Building in Times Square is that they haven't been able to come to America mm-hmm. for any reason. It's not that it's it's not like these guys flew to New York from fucking Idaho Falls, Idaho. And then they're surprised at the big buildings that we don't have back home. They are transcending political boundaries because of their musical accomplishment, and that's a big fucking deal. Yeah. So it's not it's another very good know, point as well. The, like the the scenes of them looking at the bobbleheads in the the windows of the souvenir shops. Maybe that's a little pandery or whatever, and it, it crosses maybe into some territory of like, haha, look, they don't know who these people are because they're not from here, right? So there's a little bit of that, that 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 I might be concerned about, but I don't think it's like. I don't know. I I think it's it's showing this like, look, they. They spent their whole lives focusing on this one passion and look where it's taken them. I don't know. It. I, I think it's kind of cool. I think it's a special thing. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think I agree with the review in the sense that I think that the, in certain parts, like I, I love and don't love the editing in this movie. Like there were things that we touched on earlier, like the cuts between seeing the woman singing in the st- in the streets and then on stage like i liked those little like um, from small town to international star like those little cuts but then there's certain cuts here where i agree i think that they should have let the concert and the music speak for itself in the end but not take out those shots i think they should have shown those shots of them visiting the empire state building and times square and even looking in the window before that like i feel like it should have been more linear But that's just my opinion from one viewing of this film.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I
0: I I just feel like it all has to be in a different order. Like, it's all there, and it's good. I agree with that. But it just needs to be ordered differently.
1: I agree. I I 100% agree with that. Yeah. But I'm also not into it being just like a concert video of just like uninterrupted song after song. Agreed. You know what I mean? So it's, I don't know. I don't know how I would have done it any better, so I can't really (laughs) complain. is the moral of the story. So,
0: last thing before we get to our full reactions is the Legacy Beyond 1999. And there were four things that we can touch on. So, Andrew, what were two of them?
1: Okay, you want me to do two? Wow, you trust me with so much information. (laughs) Uh, The first one is that there was a follow-up album. So, two years later, the production team reassembled for Buena Vista Social Club presents Ibrahim Ferrer. That's the album that they're making in this movie. Yep. They're not making the Buena Vista Social Club album in this movie. They're making the Ibrahim Ferrer album. So yes. there you go. Um, a bunch of the other people who were involved with this, including Elena Sochoa, Company Segundo, and Omar Portuondo, went on to make records of their own solo albums that were also, I think, pretty good hits. Um, and in addition to the the album sequels, there was a movie sequel, which was Buena Vista Social Club Adios. And the follow-up film was directed by Lucy Walker, taking place 16 years after the first film. Uh, it followed five original band members who were still alive. Um, a lot of them have passed away since then. And it kind of catalogs their final tour that they did.
0: Yeah. There were two other things that were made in terms of the legacy. The award season. The film ended up winning Best Documentary at the European Film Awards and went on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature at the 2000 Oscars. And, it's interestingly enough, picking up from a conversation we were having last episode, it's been referenced as a period piece.
1: That's sexist, Jared.
0: (laughs) So, Buenavis' Social Club has been referenced, has been referenced as a period piece in its own right because it was capturing a snapshot of a time in the world when things were truly different. For example, one only needs to look at the shot of the members of the social club looking up at the Twin Towers during their New York City visit. Only two years later would September 11th happen.
1: But wouldn't you argue that almost any documentary is a period piece because it's capturing something exactly how it is at the time?
0: Yes, but it's been referred to more specifically as a diplomatic effort that helped set the stage for post-revolutionary relationship to Cuba, a rare meeting between neighbors after decades of distance. So it's capturing this time when America and Cuba were not cool with each other, when it things were not great. And it's kind of showcasing both the past and then what the future could potentially be with this meeting of people from two different worlds that are finally coming together and realizing that we're maybe not so different after all. So, without further ado, let's get to our reactions. Um, if you want to go first, I'm cool with that.
1: All right. Let me tell you what I didn't like about it. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't like that some of the shit looks like it was filmed on a potato. There's <laughs> nothing they could have done about it, but I don't like it. <laughs> um, I think at the beginning, there's a lot of weird random cutting, and there's nothing to really get you... like. Grounded in what's going on and it doesn't establish the story early on. And that bothers me. Um, really we don't get the story until the last 45 minutes or so, which I mentioned earlier. And I think that's the one thing about this documentary that really needed some help was like, tell me what journey we're going on so I can feel like I understand what all of this footage is culminating to. Cause I did not get it. You know what I mean? It just did not come through at first. So those are the things I didn't like. Um, Otherwise, things I liked, I like the Buzz Lightyear doll in Kompai Segundo's niece's room because it's one of the very few opportunities that we have to connect this movie to another movie that we've done on the podcast, which is Toy Story 2. So there you go. Um, Also, I mentioned this before. I'm going to say it again. Cuban people dress cool as shit. Stylish as all hell. And then finally, the music is just fucking excellent, dude. I've been listening to this shit all week. It's so good. I have been bumping it. Yeah, it's awesome. And I like it. So that's, that's what I liked and disliked. What about you?
0: So my only really big complaint was something that you touched on, which was just the, the, the editing of the story itself. There were great editing points, and there were definitely things and moments that were great editing-wise. But as a linear story it doesn't come in until those last 40, 45 minutes. And that's, it's pretty jarring to watch that and to try to follow and understand where everything is going. Um, that's really my only thing that, I mean, there's the, the camera footage moving around. It's not the greatest thing, but at the same time, it's like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's using what you had in the, in the moment. And I, I respect that aspect of it, even if it doesn't look great. Um, the thing that I love about this movie is the moments where they're playing. That's as simple as I'm going to keep it. It's, um, Like I said, we're always caught up in our little worlds of the genres and types of music that we love or don't love, and it's really you get very lost in seeing that, oh, there's like a billion other people on this planet there's billions of other people on this planet that all play different kinds of music that have never even heard a song that we listen to or anything like that and to see something from a different kind of culture and to see the reaction and how emotional it makes them is I think really really fantastic and it it really does bring us all together a little bit more so I appreciated that a lot
1: well said, bro. Thank you. Good job.
0: And with that being said, this is the shortest episode we've ever recorded. Next week, we're going back into the fictional world um, with Varsity Blues, a teen rom-com drum. I don't even know what I would classify this. Would you classify this as a rom-com?
1: I don't know, man. I haven't seen yeah. it. All right, well. I'm just excited to see a professional-looking football player without an ACL tear. There.
0: And sports, I don't follow sports, but he does. So he knows more, and he's gonna know. He's gonna have a bulk to say about all the football stuff next week. So or next episode. This film is not currently streaming on any services, but you can rent it from Amazon Prime, Microsoft, Google Play, iTunes, Vudu, or wherever else you get your digital rentals from. Um, anything else you want to add in?
1: Adios, motherfuckers. <laughs>
0: All right, we'll see you guys. Be kind, rewind. We'll see you for the next episode with Varsity Blues.
1: Bye. Coming
0: soon to theaters. In America, we have laws. And it's just accepted that as a member of American society, you will live by these laws. In West Canaan, Texas, there is another society which has its own laws.
1: We woke up in the Twilight Zone. West
0: Canaan, sex and football. It's all there is. <laughs> hey, Mark! Let's roll! <laughs> Woo! Lance, can I have your autograph? Right
1: here? I tell you, these players are just running around flawless.
0: Oh, my boy's too much trouble for you. Oh, no, uh uh-huh. Coach. What the hell are you doing?
1: Changing. Oh, come on, I'm wearing underwear. Does it really bother you?
0: I can handle it. Tell me this is he's over in a few weeks. Five more games. No more football. No more Kilmer. And if I get into Brown, no more whiskey. Woo! Damn! Yeah! Come
1: on! Keep your shirt on, Billy Bob. Make the strip club, man. I'm here to work. <laughs> this is better than football. This is better than anything.
0: We do things around right here my way. You're gonna be second string all your life, boy. This game is 48 minutes. For the next 48 years of your life. The hell
1: with Kilmer. <laughs> this is your opportunity yeah. For you.
0: Playing football at West Canaan may have been the opportunity of your lifetime. But I don't
1: want your life. You disobey me and I will bury you. I know about your scholarship to
0: Brown. Only way are we going back out in the fields without you. Kilmer yeah, said 48 minutes for the next 48
1: years of our lives. I say we go out there and we'll leave it all out on the field. We got the rest of our lives to be
0: mediocre, but we have the opportunity to play like gods.
1: Let's be heroes.